Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. I'm going to take you, you back to uh, the Sea of Galilee, and we are going to go across that sea. I mentioned it. Uh, we, we saw the, the breaking of the, of the loaves. Remember that? The five loaves and the two fish, and, and he fed uh, 10,000, 15,000 people. We saw the miracle of that and the wonder of that. Well, after he did that, if you recall, a stir began in the crowd. And the stir was that they, they wanted to take and seize him and make him king. It was a mob action. Uh, they knew he didn't want to be. Uh, he, he was not the kind of king they wanted. They wanted a leader who would help them get rid of the Romans. They wanted, a, they wanted the Messiah to arrive, and they wanted this era of, of, of peace and, and prosperity. The Messiah will arrive, and there will be peace and prosperity. But here's the thing the human heart doesn't engage. It's just what I mentioned. They didn't realize he had to die for them first. That if he came like that in glory, he would have to judge them all. Do you understand that? You can't just come right to God. You have to have the sin issue dealt with. And the human heart just says, well, let him, let him forget it. He, you know, God should just lighten up. Yeah, let's think about that a bit. Let's just think about what not only you, you've done and others, just, he's just going to lighten up? Just sort of, yeah, it's okay. Come on in, all of you. you. You want a heaven like that? He has to deal with the sin. That's what, and so he's, he is refusing. This is one year, where we are, where I'm talking to you today, is one year ahead of Palm Sunday. But the exact same dynamics are taking place on this day. We have them trying to make him king. He spots what's going on. His disciples are apparently joining the, the crowd. <laughs> it's like, guys. And so he puts them in a boat and says, get out of here. Go, go, row. And then, then he somehow dismisses the crowd. Get, you go out, you go home. And, and then he goes up. They don't, by the way. They don't, but he sneaks out on them and goes up a hill. If this is where I think it is, and I think it is, there is a hill right there. Well, we go there when we go to Israel. You can, there's this plain, there's this beach, it's all, that you can see where it would be. It wouldn't be north of there, it's all swamp. It's right here. And right there is this hill that comes right up near the water. And, and uh, you can still actually go up part of it. And so he was up on this hill, and you can see the whole lake. It's right spread out before you. And this is Passover, which means we're at full moon. It is, there's a storm, a windstorm, high winds. Uh, how high can they get? Well, when we were there last time, 80 miles an hour the day before we were there across the lake. Yeah, they cleared everything off the lake, believe me. Uh, it was 80 miles an hour. We, when we got there, the wind was still blowing, uh, and it's, it was quite a wind then but 80 miles an hour. So this is a strong wind coming from the west, headed east, and uh, these disciples are, are, are rowing their way across this lake. It's about five miles between where they are and where they were headed, which was Capernaum. They, got, they only got about three, 
uh, three or four of those miles, uh, and then something happened. Father, would you open our hearts? We love the word, and we love you. Jesus, we want to see you, our, 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 our rabbi, our teacher, our master. We want you to disciple us. We want to follow you. We want to listen to you. We want you to speak right into our hearts. We would, in this 2,000 years later, follow you as, as carefully and wholeheartedly as Peter and Andrew, James and John. We are your disciples. Disciple us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Grace me to get out of the way. Amen. What I'm going to do now is I take the, the three Gospels, John, Matthew, and Mark, all report this event of crossing the lake. But they all add different, different pieces to the puzzle. And so what I've done is I'm telling you a story now of pulling all three together. We're going to, go, we're going to see it as a consistent story. Let's start on Monday. After the miracle of the loaves and fish, Jesus sent the disciples away in the boat and went up on a nearby hill to pray. He remained there throughout most of the night. From, there he, from where he sat, the lake was spread out before him, and since it was near the time of the Passover, there would have been nearly a full moon casting its light over the lake. That meant he was able to watch his disciples struggle as they rode against a strong west wind. Capernaum... Uh, lay about five miles northwest of where this gathering likely took place. And by three o'clock in the morning, the boat had covered only three to four miles, and the men were growing exhausted. Suddenly, someone looked behind them and spotted a human shape walking toward them through the darkness. At first, they thought it was a demonic spirit. Matthew says a phantasm. <laughs> I mean, yes, I didn't make that up. They think it's, they think it's a demon. And I would suppose their first response was to row harder, wouldn't it be yours? And to try to outrun it by that. But that soon failed as the strange being caught up to them and began to pass by on one side. They weren't able to see well enough to recognize who or what it was and became so frightened they trembled and began to scream. That's what it says. So they're screaming like school children. Ah! They're, they're really frightened. All of them had heard stories about night spirits. I didn't realize it, but that's part of the culture. There was night spirit stories uh, who, would, who would creep up on people, you know, and bring disaster. Uh, so in that moment of confusion, they thought they were doomed. Mercifully, as he was passing by, Jesus spoke to them saying, be encouraged. It's me. Uh, don't be afraid. Then Peter did something only Peter would do. He yelled into the roaring wind, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you upon the waters. Apparently, as soon as the fear left him, this lifelong fisherman became so fascinated by the fact that a human being could walk on the water, he wanted to try. <laughs> that Peter would dare to ask such a thing is very significant. It means he did not assume that Jesus was doing something that no normal human being could ever do. This gives us a glimpse into what, how Peter understood Jesus. Do you see this? If, he, if all he thought of Jesus is as sort of a, a divine being who looks like a human, then, then he would be thinking of Jesus as sort of floating across the water. But he doesn't. He thinks of him as human as he is. And he says, Lord, I want to do that. Call me to come. He did not place him, Jesus, into a special category. 
Of course he knew Jesus was God's son and, promised, and the promised Messiah. In fact, they would worship Jesus when he got back on the boat. Yet that did not diminish for Peter the reality that Jesus was also fully human. Say fully human. Fully. Say fully divine. Fully. He's both, yes. In other words, he did not take this miracle. He did not think this miracle took place because Jesus was a divine being who only appeared to be human. In Peter's mind, Jesus was a man walking on the water, not a divine spirit floating over the top of the lake. Though John does not record this incident in his gospel, one of his primary goals in writing it was to reveal the true nature of Jesus. He opened his gospel by telling us that Jesus' spirit, that is the essential person himself, intellect, will, and emotions, you, have a spirit, you are spirit, I am too, is God. Divine, is God's divine son through whom all creation was formed. But John also shows us the genuine humanity Jesus took on in the incarnation. And it's that genuine humanity that we see reflected in Peter's reaction. The person Peter saw standing in the waves was as human as he was, and he realized that Jesus was showing them what is possible, listen to this, for a God-led, spirit-empowered human to do. So Peter dared to ask if he could walk on water too. Most, a lot of commentaries or people that reflect on this go, see, this shows he's God. He's, you know, he can walk on water. You know? Well, so can Peter. No, it does not. This is not an, a, a divine issue. Peter could walk on water too. And that Jesus fully agreed with Peter's assessment of the situation is proven by his one word answer, come. Peter immediately lowered himself down from the boat and began to walk on the water. And he headed toward Jesus. At first, it must have been a shock to sense the water become firm under his feet. But then he focused his eyes on Jesus and started moving toward him. Somewhere between the boat and Jesus, Peter stopped to look around. I'll tell you why I know that in a minute. High winds were still rushing over the lake. Great waves were rolling by, making the water uneven. And the spray blowing in his face must have made it hard to see. So he turned and looked back at the boat and then again at Jesus. And it was at that moment that he started to sink. He didn't plunge down under the water all at once. He went down gradually. Now, Peter was a fisherman and could swim which gives us some idea of how violent that storm must have been. If a trained fisherman was terrified, these must have been gale force winds with high crashing waves. As he sank, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And as he lifted him back up, he said, now yours will say, O man of little faith, or O ye of little faith. It doesn't say that, it just says little faith. Little faith. Why did you, what does yours say? Doubt, does it? There's a word for doubt. There's a very common word for doubt, and it's not here. And exactly why everyone translates it doubt, I don't know, because it's a very unusual word that's used here. And the word, where do I have it? There it is. It, the word is distazo. It means, you recognize the word die? We, we use die what, for two. I mean, and stazo is the word stand. So it has, the point is, two standings. You're standing looking one way, down this path, 
and you're standing looking down this path. Why, says Jesus, he didn't say, why did you doubt? I could do miracles. He said, why did you stand in two places? Why did you look back at the boat and then look back at me? Why did you waver? There's a good translation of it. But to what, between what you're going to do. It was the moment, Peter's going along, you know, he's going, hey, look at that. You know, whoa. And then the waves, you know, going, oh, oh. And he turned back like, should I go back quick? And then he turned back. And at that point, we start going under. Does that sort of resonate? You ever get into something going, we're going great. <gasps> Maybe I should go back. That's the point. That's the point. <clears throat> In other words, he asked him, why did you stop and think about whether to keep coming toward me or to turn back to the boat? As they both climbed into the boat, the wind suddenly died down. And at this point in his gospel, Mark says the disciples were overwhelmed. He literally says they are beside themselves. That's the word. And then explained why. He said it was because they still did not understand. This is important. The spiritual lesson that they should have learned from the miracle of the loaves. I'll show you that quote later. Because their hearts had been hardened. Matthew tells us that when Jesus got into the boat, the disciples actually worshipped him, declaring, truly, you are the Son of God. Unfortunately, their worship did not produce a lasting faith. They soon returned to doubting that God would provide for them. One more miracle may have taken place before that journey ended. The boat had been about a mile and a half from Capernaum, and when Jesus joined the disciples, when he, when he joined the disciples, but, John, but then John said, at once, uh, straightway, immediately, the boat was upon the land to which they were going. His choice of words seems to apply, imply that they were miraculously transported to the shore in an instant. He gets in the boat, and they're on the shore. And they didn't arrive at Capernaum. They were, they were taken a, a mile or so south uh, uh, on the coast at a valley called Gennesaret. Gennesaret, we go through that. It's Jesus' boat. If you go with it, right in there. Uh, there's, there's orchards and all of this kind of thing, but it's, it's down the coast a little bit. Uh, he's trying to, Jesus wants to rest. Remember? That's why we, why we went over there on the east side the first place. He's trying to rest and talk to his disciples. People spot, it's first thing in the morning, people spot him. The minute they spot him, they go running out and find all the sick people and bring them and carry them to Jesus. So he doesn't, he, he, he can't get away from it anywhere. And then the, the Gospels tell us every person that touched him, and it mentions in two Gospels that they touched the fringe of his garment. Remember we hear about the woman who did? Well, a lot of people did apparently. And they touched the fringe. He would have, I think it's his prayer shawl. It's his prayer. That's when you talk about the mantle and all that. That's, those are early prayer shawls. And so he's got his, he's got his thing, and they're t- all they do is even touch him. If they just can touch him, it says every one of them was healed. That is not how you get rid of a crowd. <laughs> that will not do it. That does not, that does not calm things down at all. All right, let's turn to our, 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 our message. I want to talk about always. The question that confronts most of us when we pray is not whether we believe God can help us. 
but whether he, we believe he will. We wonder if it's his plan. We wonder if we have enough faith. We wonder if we might have done something wrong in the past that will block his answer. In fact, so many uncertainties rush through our minds that even when we ask for help, we assume there's probably some reason he won't. Our faith that he can is so undermined by our doubt that he will that we function like those who have no faith at all. Does that make sense? If you ask most of it, if you ask, and my point is we're going to see these disciples here. Did they doubt for a second that Jesus could do miracles? No, they've been watching them left and right. But where, where, the, where the problem comes is in the particular situation, they doubt that he will. Now think about that. When you and I go to prayer, when you and I have a need, we don't doubt that he can help us. The issue becomes muddled in our minds. We doubt he will. Either I've done something wrong, or I don't know if it's what his plan is. You know, is this his will for me? Uh, we go through all sorts of struggle. And so we function just like people who don't believe at all. And it's this issue of expecting a miracle. Would you say expecting a miracle? Expecting. Now, of expecting a miracle that Jesus deals with in his disciples in this lesson. The lesson of the loaves. I'm, I'm, I'm taking this out of Mark, and I'll quote it in a second. Mark says the reason the disciples were afraid in the storm and so shocked when Jesus helped them was because they didn't understand the lesson of the loaves. Listen, he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the loaves, but their heart was hardened. What was that lesson? What truth had their heart, hardened hearts not heard? The key that unlocks the answer is a question that can be asked about the need for bread on the east side of the lake, or about exhausted rowers caught in a violent storm, or about Peter trying to walk on water. The question is this, why were the disciples in trouble? We're going to have an answer here, I think. <laughs> and, the, and the answer is the same in each case. They were in that situation because they were doing what Jesus told them to do. Did you follow where I'm going with this? Why were they there with a crowd of people of 10, 15,000 who are all hungry in the evening and there's no food? That's Jesus' fault. He got them into that. Why, why were they in the lake in the middle of a storm? He put them in the boat and sent them out. They knew better. Why is Peter trying to walk in the water? Jesus said, come. They were in that situation because they were doing what Jesus told them to do. They faced a massive hungry crowd because Jesus had decided to teach and minister all day. Had he turned the boat around when he saw everyone waiting on the beach or kept walking after they landed, there would have been no problem. And it was Jesus who made the disciples get into the boat late in the evening just as a windstorm was beginning to blow. There were at least four fishermen in that boat who knew better than to launch out in these conditions. But they did as they were told. Later that night when Peter saw Jesus walking on the water, he didn't impulsively jump overboard. He asked Jesus first. And Jesus had commanded him, come. Otherwise, he would have stayed in the boat. Do you see it? In every case, they were in trouble because Jesus got them into trouble. The cry, ha <laughs> ha, aren't you glad you came today? This, the crisis 
Crises were his fault if we want to blame someone. And seeing that fact begins to explain why Jesus was so frustrated by their lack of faith. These situations, trust, are not unlike Israel during the Exodus. Time and again, the cloud and the fire led the nation into trouble. God led them to a beach where they were trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. He led them to a place where there was nothing but bitter water to drink, or no food to eat, or no water at all, or Amalekites viciously attacking them. And in each crisis, God expected them to call on him in faith, and he would perform a miracle to rescue them. Do you see the similarity? It's the same exact sort of thing. When you follow God, he'll put you in a mess. Take that home with you. A pattern. Well, there's more to it. Don't don't leave yet. A pattern. Whether we watch Israel during the Exodus or the disciples following Jesus, a pattern emerges. Those who pursue God and obey his guidance will be carried into circumstances beyond their human resources. And God will lead them into situations that require his supernatural help. Crises will arise not because we failed to listen, but because we did listen. Not because we failed to obey, but because we did obey. Has he led you into anything? Have you ever gotten done what you know he told you to do, and in the middle of the mess afterwards, you're going, I must have missed it. I must not have. Huh? No, you didn't. He put you there. See, if you understand that, how many of us have second-guessed our guidance because it got hard? If you're leading two million people across a desert to take them to someplace where there's no water, it's not a good idea. (laughs) But he planned to do something, didn't he? You cannot look at the circumstances because they turned out hard and decide you missed it. That's just bogus. He does it all the time. And you can't say because things aren't right, because things aren't there, because the resources are... No, he does that. This is part of the way he functions. Crises will arrive, and when they do, uh, God will look for a certain attitude in us. He wants us to trust him. Would you say trust him? He wants us to be confident that he will personally come to rescue us. Always. If the lesson of the loaves is that where God guides, he provides. The lesson of Jesus coming to his disciples in the storm is that God will always provide for those who follow him. He is not fickle. He doesn't rescue us out of one situation only to abandon us in the next. He's consistent. He's reliable. You can always count on him. He's trustworthy. Jesus' disappointment in his disciples went far beyond frustration over the fact that they didn't have enough faith for miracles. You notice he's not dealing with their sort of their atheism. He's not saying, do you doubt that miracles can happen? That's not it. It's like, why don't you trust me? You think I'm going to put you in a storm and let you drown? That's offensive. They're going right at who he is. This is is way more than just some uh, concept about miracles. It was personal for him. Did they really think he would send them into a storm and then let them drown? They should have known he would come, that he would walk across a lake if he had to. 
But when he arrived, they thought he was a ghost. Did Peter really think he would let him try something that was impossible or would stand there and watch him drown? Jesus wanted, wanted more than conceptual faith. He wanted them to trust him. He wanted them to have faith in his character, not just his power. The leaven of doubt. On another occasion, uh, uh, the, when the disciples doubted that Jesus would provide, he warned them that they doubted him because they were listening to the voices that were attacking him. Um, let me remind you of that one. It's, it's in the future from where we are, um, maybe, I don't know, a few weeks or something. And he has multiplied uh, bread again and fish, this time for 4,000 uh, men and then all the women. So what do we have? Eight, 10,000 uh, Gentiles. He's already done another miracle. And then at some point, they're getting into a boat, and they're sailing across, and they only have one loaf of bread in the boat. And they start to worry that they're out, there's no food. And they begin to squabble among other, one another as to whose fault it was that they only have one loaf of bread. Jesus loses it. Uh, he, he, you read it. I got the voice. It's very close to losing it. He, he, he says, wait a minute. He says, when there, were, when there was uh, uh, 5,000 5, hungry people, uh, how many loaves of bread did I eat? You had five. And, and how many people did I feed? Probably 10 or 15,000. When, 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 when there was all of those Gentiles and they were hungry, uh, how many loaves of bread did I have? Four. And, and how many people did I feed? Oh, I'd maybe eight and 10,000 people. And you're upset that there's one loaf of bread in the boat. He is. He's really like, he's, and then he says this. He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And, and in, depending on which version it is, he's got, a, he's got a whole list. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware the leaven of the Sadducees. Beware the leaven of Herod. Leaven. Remember what that is? That's yeast. It's that little, little plant, single-cell plant, and it gets into that stuff, and it, it multiplies the cells, and then they produce gas. That's what causes your bread to, to rise. It's full of gas. And uh, won't go any further with that. Um, all right. The, listen, the Pharisees had said he had a demon. The Sadducees said he was insane. And Herod thought he was the reincarnation of John the Baptist. And if they listened to people like that, doubt would fill their minds. Like leaven spreads through a lump of dough. What more did he need to do to prove that he would be faithful to them, that they could always trust him? How long would it take for them to start expecting him to help them rather than being shocked when he did? You see that? They're listening to the wrong voices. Do we have such voices? Do you have people who will undermine, discredit Jesus, make, mock all of this? It, 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 it's like leaven in the brains. It, it just, uh, uh, we're not taking our heads off and being foolish, but it comes down ultimately not to, not to issues. It comes down to a, a worldview. Is there a God who's alive and able to do something, or is there not? And most of the people who are trying to argue to you against all the other things, fundamentally, whether they even say it or not, believe there is at least no God who does anything. So there you are. Which, which worldview is it? You don't need to listen to all the arguments. You don't need to solve all the issues. Do you 
think someone spoke this, this universe into existence. I would say that's quite the miracle. It's massive. It's just beyond. It's breathtaking. If he can do that, he can do anything. There's an interesting observation we can make here about Jesus' struggle with his disciples. The problem wasn't their obedience. In each case, they had done what he told them to do. Jesus' frustration is targeted at the fear that arose in them because they questioned whether or not he would help them. They didn't doubt miracles, they doubted him. At root, they distrusted his character. They assumed he was like them. Unreliable, fickle, that he might send them into something difficult and forget to help or grow frustrated with them and abandon them. This is one of the most difficult things we have in dealing with God. We, have, we humans can, cannot really conceive of, of a being who is different in nature than we are. This is why we have trouble with the, the, the Trinity. This is why people get in all kinds of kerfluffle over the Trinity. How can a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit all function in harmony and peace, and one, in one unity? We can't. Put three of us in a room, and we have four opinions. Put, put us in a room, and we're going to argue. We're going to fight over who's leading. We're going to criticize each other. We're going to undermine each other. We're going to be jealous if one gets attention and the other doesn't. And we project that on God. And we think he must be like us. And so we could come up with all sorts of stupid explanations for the Trinity and the answer to it. Bible simply says the Father begot a Son. The Son tells us He does nothing but glorify His Father. The Holy Spirit is given to us, and He does not, He glorifies the Son and lifts Him up to us and reveals all things and is with us. You go, how does that happen? We're not told, but we know this: complete, complete harmony and love and submission. The Father's the Father, the Son's the Son. We can't. You, you see the issue? We keep thinking He's like us. We're fickle. I'll forget. I promise to do stuff and he'll remember the next day. He doesn't. Choosing to trust. There are different ways of getting into trouble. We can get ourselves into a mess because we don't ask for guidance or disobey the guidance we have. But as we watch Israel in the Exodus or Jesus with his disciples, we discover that they, we can also get into trouble by obeying God. It's one thing to know we're in a mess because we put ourselves there. The solution to that problem begins with repentance. That would be another sermon. But what matters when God gets, it, what matters when God gets us into a mess is our attitude. And that's a choice. Do I choose to trust or yield to distrust? Because distrust comes naturally and easily. To distrust him when resources run out pardon me, to trust him when resources run out or waves crash around me, requires me to discipline my emotions and remember how he helped me in the past. It requires me to wait patiently, confident that he will surely arrive. With this in mind, listen again to a familiar scripture. Why don't you read it with me? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though you and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. 
They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. What do they have to do? They have to wait. Say wait. wait. Yeah. Notice wait isn't some kind of passive thing. Wait is a matter of refusing that fear, refusing that doubt, of sitting while things are difficult, while you're tired, while you're out of strength, while everything is run out, you wait for him to show up. I will not grow sour. I will not go angry. I will not accuse. I will not come up with a whole lot of stupid explanations. I will wait for him to come. What does he say will happen to those who wait for him to come? You will rise up with wings like eagles. He will come. He will come to you. And he will lift you up above the situation. He'll strengthen you. Though natural resources all fail, divine resources will not. A Christian heroine. As I read biographies of great men and women of faith, this quality of trust is at the heart of their greatness. Over and over again, I read about someone stepping out in obedience and ending up in a desperate, even life-threatening situation. But the predictable response that marks the great ones is that they always drop to their knees and bring their need before the Lord and thank Him for providing one way or another before they've seen an answer. And when then when I read about how God meets their needs, it's often so miraculous, I find myself laughing out loud. Then I ask myself, what would I have done at critical points in my life if I had faith like theirs? What if I hadn't left, let fear stop me and had just stepped out and tried to do what I believe he told me to do? What if I hadn't complained when things got rough but dropped to my knees and told the Lord I was sure he would help me. Here's an example of one of these heroes. A young woman named Lillian Trasher saved up enough money to get a one-way ticket on a steamer to Egypt. And in 1910 started an orphanage that cared for thousands of desperate children. You know I love these books. Uh, I really hope you'll start consider reading them. We have them in the bookstore. We have a couple sets in the uh, library. Uh, so you can see all of them. You can't take them out of the library, but you can read them there. But it's mostly so you can see them. Uh, this woman was 23 years old. Uh, she had been engaged, loved the man. He loved her. And the Lord spoke to her and said, I'm calling you to be a missionary. He did not feel called to be a missionary. And so she graciously separated, brokered heart. She loved him very much. He loved her. She felt called to Africa, and then the Lord focused her and said, it's Egypt. She saved up enough money. She doesn't have much, any money, money. Saved up the money for a one-way ticket on a steamer to Egypt in 1910. And she, her older sister went with her. Can you do, would you do this? <laughs> would I do this? She, she gets to Egypt, and, and, and she ends up in a place, a little mission station, in a place called Asyut. Uh, which is about 130 miles south of, of, of Cairo, down the, down the Nile River. And she's in this mission. And, and on one occasion, she's out uh, with a, some of the very poor families uh, near the river. And th she, there's this baby 
they've been asked to come, and the baby, the mother, is actually dying and actually gasps her last breath while they're there. And the, and, and the baby has, is, she, they said, she said, like, paper covering uh, a skull. There's no, it's so, so starved, the child is just actually hours within death itself, little girl. And you could, she can tell from the family. Now, they said, what are you going to do? You know, and the family's going to, uh, there's very little, it's an old man there, is going to take the baby and throw it in the Nile. And this, by the way, was what they would do with often girl babies, you know, that in a way they couldn't afford them. And uh, so she couldn't let that happen. So she takes this little one. And uh, she comes back to the mission. And the mission, uh, after a couple of nights, because the baby's crying, she's having to eyedropper feed it, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And, and uh, the, they, they said, you, the baby's got to go back. It's keeping everybody awake. And, and she says, they're back. There is no place to go back. Uh, they'll throw it in the Nile. And they said, well, it can't be here. And uh, you just get it, take it back. That's where it belongs. This happens all the time. And uh, she said, I can't do that. So I will take the baby back, and then I'll go with it. And so she walks out the door with the baby in her arm and a little suitcase. That's all she has. She has no idea where she's going. Would you do this? Would I do this? Oh, man. Okay, she's, she's walking through this town, you know, thinking, where do I go? And then she remembers she's seen a little place for rent. I think she had a couple of pounds, English pounds, of money. Uh, and she went there. And uh, they would just take that, and she rented this little thing, um, and she has nothing. The, the people, the Muslim people, rec- first, first of all, the rumors are she's trying to take our kids and sell them and all that kind of, you know, all this sort of thing. But that, they begin to realize this woman, she loves us. She loves these children. So the poor people would come by with food and little bits of money and, and care for her. She starts a little school there as gets, time goes on. What I, what I want to read now is um, she, she's now got eight children, and there's a piece of land about a half acre across the Nile, and it would be perfect for an orphanage. She's clearly uh, got an orphanage going. She's teaching them Arabic and English and, and the Bible and all of this. Uh, here, here's what happens. In August 1914, World War I began, and Egypt sided with, a, with Great Britain in the war. And in November 1914, Great Britain declared Egypt a protectorate, and assumed responsibility for protecting the Suez Canal. But for Lillian in Asyut, uh, life went on as usual. It was Tuesday morning on July 15, 1915 when Malik, one of Lillian's friends, came to visit. Malik was a government clerk, and he kept Lillian up to date on many of the happenings in town. And this particular day, he looked pleased with himself. Miss Lillian, he, uh, Malik said, I have wonderful news. You know the half acre of land across the Nile? The land you say would be a wonderful place for an orphanage? It's up for sale for 50 pounds. For a moment, Lillian's faith deserted her. 50 pounds, she exclaimed. That's a fortune. Where would I get 50 pounds? That's the equivalent of $250. Now, this is 1910. Put 1,000 times that. $250,000. That's where we were probably looking to. Suddenly, Lillian stopped speaking. 50 pounds might be a fortune to her, but didn't the Bible say that God would supply all her needs? How would she get the money? In the same way she'd gotten the money to meet her needs so far by asking God to provide it for her. I'm sorry, Malik. She said, I, I didn't mean to sound discouraging. What a wonderful opportunity this is. The children will have the kind of home uh, they deserve. Think of it, she said, as her heart soared with faith. We'll, we'll do it. Go tell the owner that I will buy the property. I'll have the money. She hesitated for a moment. I'll have the money uh, a week from today. 
Malik hurried off to deliver the message. Lillian climbed the stairs to her room. Now, this is, here it is. Now, you listen. Jesus is trying to teach his disciples to be like Lillian Trasher. I'm serious. She, she climbed the stairs to her room and when she, and where she sank to her knees and prayed, Lord, show me what to do now. I need to have 50 pounds in a week, and I have less than one pound right now. It seems impossible. I, I know that if you want the children to have this land, you will show me how to get it. As Lillian stood up, she felt she had to do something, go somewhere. She hired a donkey and set off, not knowing where she was headed. You need to know she's six feet tall, blonde, and blue eyes. And, and she rode donkeys. All, you know, so it was quite the sight. Uh, uh, she hired a donkey, set off not knowing where she was headed. Show me the way, Lord. She prayed, show me the way. So she simply started out going, Lord, lead me. You following this? All right. uh, the, the donkey had not taken Lillian far when she was reminded of an incident that occurred a few days earlier. A wealthy businessman from a village three hours away had walked past her house. He seemed intrigued by the sight of all the children reciting their English lesson and stopped to talk with Lillian. He explained her mission to him, and as she spoke, the man had asked many questions handed, and then handed her some money in his business card. Contact me if there's anything I can do to help you, the man had said as he left. It was these words that rang in Lillian's ears. Perhaps this man visiting the house had, had not been a coincidence. Perhaps God had sent him along to meet this particular need. Lillian decided to visit the man and find out. Well, the Nile is in full flood. And so she starts out, and she has to, first of all, get a proper invitation. So she goes to the mudir, which is the governor of the town. And she says, I'd like to meet this man. Would you inquire if I could meet him? Uh, he does. He says, yes, he'll meet you tomorrow at 1130. All right. So she, but he says, how are you going to get there? She says, on a donkey. She said, and even, even in Egypt, he says, donkeys are not good. You're not a dignified animal. And she, but she says, I, I'll, I, it's all I ride on. That's what I have. And so she, he, he says, well, you'll need somebody to go with you. So they go. In the process, she falls into the water. She walks into a canal and goes, boom. And so she's now covered with mud. She did have a change of clothes. And they have to go all this long way around this thing out into the desert to get, and they arrive just on time. And the man, indeed, gives them the $50. Well, now we have the land, but we have uh, no bricks, no anything. Well, she is in the proper place for bricks, Egypt. So she, all she has left over is a few piasters, uh, pennies. And she's got just enough to buy a little bit of wood to make some forms for bricks. So there on that land, they start scooping it up, and they mix it with manure. We all know that. So it makes good bricks. And you put manure in, in play, and the, and the children, and all, they all start making bricks. And then they put them in the sun to dry. Well, after she gets enough bricks piled up to start uh, a real wall, she needs, she needs some money uh, for, uh, she, for a, a bricklayer. And she, she gets uh, g given some things. And then it says, two weeks later, the first batch of bricks were ready to be taken out of their forms. The bricks had turned from a deep brown to a gray color as they dried. And in the meantime, Lillian had been given enough money to hire a bricklayer to start work on the first wall of the girls' dormitory. His name was Masigri. And he was ready to start as soon as there were enough bricks. And Lillian showed Masigri the bricks the children had made. He turned a brick out of its form and examined it carefully. Finally, he smiled. Who would believe these children had not made bricks all their lives? He said to Lillian, they're fine bricks. Wonderful, she said. When, uh, can you start tomorrow? Lillian asked. I'll, I'll measure out the foundations and start the boys digging them. 
then you can lay the bricks in the trenches. Well, Masigri shook his head. These are good bricks, but for building walls. But, uh, but for the foundation, you need especially strong bricks. They cannot be made by hand. They must come from the factory. The amount you will need cost, will cost you three pounds. Lillian gulped. Three pounds was a lot of money. Yet she heard herself say, I will order them this afternoon, Masigri. <laughs> you, you're getting a hold of this? As, as soon as Masigri left... Lillian ran to, to a quiet spot at the corner of the property. She sank to her knees. What's she going to do? Lord, you know we need these bricks for a strong foundation. Please show me how you want me to pay for them. She would regularly get on a donkey and ride out among what's called the fellaheen. That's the, that's the dirt farmers, the absolute poverty farmers. Uh, they have very little, but believe it or not, they love what she's doing. And they will fill her saddlebags with 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 vegetables and grain, and it's a little bit of money if they can afford it. So she goes out and she's she's riding, and uh, there's little bits, but not much right now. We're in a we're in a difficult time. We're in the middle of the war, and there's one village. It's the poorest village of all. This is the really poor one, and it is surrounded at this point by two miles of water, because the Nile is in flood. So she will she do it? This is you know. Why bother? They're the poorest of the poor. No one else has had any money to help us. Why even bother going out there? But she feels she should. What's she doing? She's following the word of knowledge, isn't she? All right, she gets a, she finally rents a boat, real rickety one, by the way. This ends up in disaster. But she, she gets out there and uh, listen to what happens. When she arrived, little town's called Komesfat. Uh, she arrived, Lillian was rewarded with smiles on many fellaheen faces. The village leader stepped forward. We're surprised to see you. We do not get many visitors when the Nile begins to rise, but welcome. We're glad you came. In fact, we've been talking about you for days. And we've gathered among us five pounds to help build your orphanage. How many did she meet, need? Three. Three. Lillian felt her eyes fill with tears. Never would she have expected this. She had no idea how these poor people had raised five pounds. But she appreciated their desire to help. And, as, and so many of her... As so many of her other Muslim friends had. Lillian now had enough money to pay for the bricks plus two pounds to buy supplies. Well, she, she ends up getting uh, uh, stranded on a little, <laughs> on a little rooftop. And, and the boat breaks. and It's quite the story getting back. Last night, um, one of the gentlemen in our church, he's been here for many, many years. He's, he's from Egypt. And he came up to me and he said, I'm just thrilled. He said that you men mentioned Lillian Trasher. He said, as a boy growing up, I heard of her. In fact, she's very popular. And he, and he said, so in, in school, when the teachers are taught uh, in Egypt, they, they, when I was there, they would say to her, their teachers, their upcoming teachers, you need to be like Lillian Trasher. She said she wasn't paid anything. And... and, and <laughs> And, and, and look how she cared for our people. In fact, he said, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, you recognize that name? He was the head of the United Arab Republic. I mean, he was this big deal back then, uh, the pres president of Egypt. Gave her the highest award that Egypt has to give. And he said, for a Muslim to give a Christian the highest award. He said, that went all over Africa and the Middle East. Everyone knew of her. Isn't that cool? Uh, I got one more thing. Just not bear. You'll like this. Um, as as time went on, she had thousands of children. 
One way or another, money kept, came in to keep the orphanage running. On one occasion, a rich Egyptian man came to tour the orphanage. It was, about, it was a Tuesday morning, and the man had heard about Lillian's work with the orphans, and he wanted to see it for himself. After the regular tour, Lillian asked, he asked Lillian where all the food was stored. Uh, we have it. Uh, when we have it, we keep it in the storeroom behind the kitchen, she replied, but at the moment it's empty. Do you mean to say you have no food for tomorrow, he sputtered. Well, yes, Lillian replied. How awful, he exclaimed. Will you be able to sleep tonight? One of the older orphan girls who was standing nearby laughed, laughed out loud. The man swung around to confront her. Young lady, this is no joke. She says there's no food for tomorrow. There are hundreds of mouths to feed. The teenager spoke up. Why, mama never has any food for tomorrow, and she never loses sleep over it. Is this true, the man said? Has this happened before? He stopped for a moment to study Lillian's face. What will you do if money does not come in to buy food? Lillian smiled. How wonderful it was to not only tell people that God provided for them, but also to show them. During all the years the orphanage has been in operation, the children have never missed a meal. Certainly there have been times when our faith was tested, but God has never failed us yet, and I don't expect he will now. Lillian watched as the visitor tried to take in what she'd said. She knew it was amazing, a lone foreigner taking care of over 500 children and widows without a steady source of income. It did seem ridiculous without God, she reminded herself. Early the following morning, the man returned to visit Lillian. When I left the orphanage, he said, I went to a nearby village on business, and I mentioned to the man where I'd gone to visit that I'd just come from here, and he handed me this and asked me to give it to you the next time I saw you. With a look of disbelief, the man pulled 100 pounds from his pocket. I suppose you have food for another day after all. <laughs> Lillian smiled. The Lord feeds the sparrows and clothes the lilies of the field. He looks after the widows and the orphans. I cannot dispute that, the man replied. It's remarkable, quite remarkable. That's what he wanted Peter and Andrew, James and John to do. He wanted them to be like Lillian Trasher. You and I can do this. We can do this. Do you lack the resources needed to do what he's asked you to do? Do you feel that you're alone in a storm? Is God leading you to do something that seems impossible? If so, we need to stop listening to the voices that discredit Jesus and listen instead to him. Here's what he says. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. For Here's another, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? He wants us to trust him. Do you hear, do you hear his voice? If I take you to a place where there's no food, I'll feed you. If I send you into danger, I'll rescue you or bring you home. I have to admit, there are some who've, who've died in this process. If I tell you to walk on water, you can. Expect help. Expect rescue. 
Expect the impossible. You're not limited by your lack of resources. I'll multiply what you have. You're not alone in the storm. I'll come to you. You're not dependent on the laws of nature. The impossible is possible. Trust me always. Would you stand with me? What would you and I do if fear did not hold us back? What would you and I do if we actually believed that where he guides, he provides always? That we can do anything he asks us to do. That it's a matter of his will and then stepping out and obeying. It's a very uncomfortable walk in a certain sense, isn't it? Stepping out and having 500 children and widows and no food in the pantry. That becomes a lifestyle of trust. Read those great heroes and heroines. You will find they all functioned like that. In fact, when, I, when people talk to me about finding their calling and their giftings and what am I supposed to do with my life, I, I, I'll often direct them, start reading these people because there's a way you do that. You, those who say, well, I will when I get the money. When I have enough money, I can do it. You know, or when that certain situation or this happens, then I'll, then I'll do something. They never do. It's those who are willing to follow God and let him supply all their needs. They're the ones that step out and do amazing things. She was 23 when she went to Egypt. Would I do that? Lord Jesus, we love you. You are faithful to us. As we sit in that boat with Peter and Andrew, James and John, and there's one loaf, we are not, we choose today, we are not going to argue and worry. Where you guide us, you will provide for us. Lord, for those in financial need, you, as, if there's issues we need to repent of and clean up and adjust in our budgeting, we'll do it. But Lord, where you've led us, you will care for us. You will feed us as you do the birds of the air. We bless you and honor you for that. Lord, if you're asking us to do something where there is not the resources, forgive us if we limit what you can do by our own minds. We will follow and trust you. You are not controlled by the laws of nature. You can supply where there is none. You can make a highway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. You can do all things. We are free. We are free to follow you. We are provided for and loved and released. Blessed be God who's called us to be his children. We honor you and worship you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.